Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Well, your midweek podcast is over the Formula One summer break, something I recorded for our YouTube channel. So if you've just watched the video that we put live already, which is my chat with Jonathan Noble and Blake Hinsey, then you don't need to listen to this. But if you haven't seen it, we're going to talk data today. What can we learn from studying all of the data that's available. Well, Blake, who runs his channels these days, it's a YouTube channel, a podcast, and more as well, called Break F1 with all the R's, uh, is a Formula One, ex-Formula One performance engineer for the likes of Red Bull. And so what better guest to get on to say, what are you seeing in the data? Why are Red Bull so good? How have McLaren got so good? And how have Aston fallen back? What do the data tell you? I'm joined by Blake today and our first guest, Jonathan Noble, our man in the paddock every weekend. Jonathan, how is your season going so far for you? Yeah, it's been interesting. I think we could have had a bit better racing, uh, kind of one-sided. But I always always think these things, this this is classic Formula 1. We go through periods of domination and in 20 years' time, we're going to look back and go, wasn't that amazing, that period of Verstappen and Red Bull? So we'll quickly forget. And at some point, it's gonna this era is going to end and they'll trip up and another team will come in. Uh, it could happen next race, could happen two years' time, but at some point it will happen because no one dominates forever. And our returning special guest. We always get amazing comments on these videos when we feature Blake. Feel free to leave one today if you like what he does. Blake Hinsey, a.k.a. Break F1. Love his YouTube videos, love his podcasts, uh, his gaming channel, and uh, his videos, like my recent one, talking about why Red Bull were sandbagging and lifting off in Belgium for a certain reason. Check out that recent video on his channel. Getting hundreds of thousands of views, and you just smashed through 100,000 subscribers on your main channel, Blake. I know you're far too humble to boast about it, but I want to say really well done. We love following your your content, and uh, thank you so much for, for doing what you do. I appreciate that very much, Martin. Thank you. That's uh, Yeah, I don't take compliments very well, but I do appreciate it. Okay, let's jump into it. We won't do this video in championship order. I'll try and pick out some, some storylines. The Cinderella story of the season has to be McLaren so far. They started off the year missing their winter targets, being a genuine backmarker. 
at times, not giving Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri the machinery to fight with. Fast forward, and towards the end of that first half, although it's a longer first half of the season, three podiums in a row, or whatever that thing is that you call the top three of the sprint. But, you know, finishing in the, the top three, looking genuinely quick. Belgium, we finished the, the first half of the season slightly off, didn't we, McLaren? Because specific reasons, they set the car up a little bit more for a wet race. They didn't bring specific bits for that. I think we'll, we won't see that happen perhaps again when we come back racing. Uh, but either way, what can you tell us about what the data suggests about McLaren's climb up the grid this year? Are you seeing a genuine improvement in that MCL 60? Yeah, I, I genuinely think the short answer of that is yes, but the, the why and the how and what it looks like and where it comes from is even more interesting. And I didn't appreciate this until I went back and looked at last year. Lando's average finishing position was something like P8 last season, and clearly McLaren weren't happy with that. And then we look at Ricardo's average finishing position was something like P13. This year, the aggregate between uh, Piastri and Norris was about P13. So I'm like, okay, that's bad. And as you said, they were super honest out of the gate. We missed our targets specifically with drag. And if you look at the data, that is very clear. They're literally reasonably competitive through the corners, but they just have so much drag on the car. And they got to a point where they can't put downforce on the car to improve their cornering performance without going slower through the corners. So I, I think that's quite obvious. So before Spain, lots of drag on the car, but also not particularly competitive in any you know high speed, medium speed, or low speed range. But from Spain, we saw a marked improvement in their high speed and medium speed corners. And something that Lando's touched on quite a few times is uh, the balance of the car and him having to V the corner, you know, break in a straight line, not ask for too much combined loading, and then get straight on the power. And that was really clear. The low speed entries for McLaren are standout poor, and that's knocking back to the, the medium speed issue. But from Austria, we not only saw their single lap pace improve, as in they're now within half a percent of pole, which is... That basically means you're fighting for a podium if you're within half a percent with the field spread we have. Huge improvements to their high-speed cornering. They were actually faster than Red Bull through the high-speed corners in Austria, which I don't think a lot of people appreciated at the time. But, um, you know, Red Bull have been very good at having a well-balanced, lots of downforce. You know, we'll get back to their efficiency and straight-line speed. But to be able to match or better them in high-speed corners, they've definitely put some improvement in the car. Again, their medium speed at this point also improved which is okay high speed corners if you add five kilometers an hour in a high speed corner you gain a little bit of lap time you had five kilometers an hour through a medium speed corner we're getting very serious five kilometers an hour in a low speed corner especially the entry those are those are how you find the gains so that's that's something worth keeping in mind we say they found high speed performance um they're still a little bit draggy in a straight line but i don't think anybody's going to come close to red bull's efficiency this season in terms of having downforce where you need it and then shedding that downforce and drag in a straight line to go quickly. Uh, and then we kind of got back to Spa. And it looks, and people, the big question I think a lot of people asked you guys is, have McLaren lost their way? Was this a, you know, two or three shots and they're done? It looks like they banked quite heavily on a wet setup. And I think you guys have talked about that extensively. I expect to see McLaren strong after the break. But I think that we will see them improving through the rest of the season. Super impressive uh, change of form by them be it uh, a technical restructure or stuff they had in the pipeline as soon as they hit testing and they said, oh no, this thing's a bit slow. 
Yeah, I think I think one of the fascinating things about McLaren and I mean Andreas Stella has been one of the you know sensations of the season this year. I think when he, when he was appointed to the role, a lot of people questioned, is this the right step for McLaren? And then you go to the launch and he says, oh, the launch specs not very good. And you think, oh, this is a kind of a rookie team boss error to play things down. But he's been absolutely bang on. And I think what's been critical to McLaren's progress, and it's what Red Bull's strengths are, is understanding what these cars want, what these cars need, and where performance comes from um, they understand the window they've been ticking off certain boxes one box they've not ticked off is low drag high efficiency which was exposed at spa so they need to do something definitely for monza and vegas later on this year but it's understanding i think red bull have got an understanding of what's needed and you look at teams like ferrari look at teams like mercedes they're a bit been a bit lost with these current cars they've got concepts that don't work they're trying to change direction they're hamstrung by the cost cap hamstrung by architectural choices they made with their kind of side impact structs and chassis. So it's a, it's a slow process for them to come back. But I think if you understand how these cars get their performance, where it comes from, where it's set up, what the ride height needs to be, what your kind of different performances, you're away. And I think that's the story of McLaren's season. Yeah, no, they've definitely started to genuinely unpack those things. And it's, it's for me, it's really awesome seeing because I think Piastri has been super impressive. And we know Lando's a, a great talent. And to see them having a car that can now compete for steps on the podium, are they going to be able to compete for that top step anytime soon? Which is, I think, what we're all asking of McLaren, Mercedes, Ferrari. And maybe we were thinking that about Aston Martin for a bit. But All right. Now, let's do almost the inverse story to McLaren, a team that started the season really, really strong. I said on the Autosport podcast earlier this year, and it was, you know, in hindsight, you might laugh at this question. But I did say at the very beginning of the season, we saw Aston's pace. I said, look, if those two Red Bull drivers end up fighting, being on the same bit of asphalt at the same time and, you know, doing a Hamilton Rosberg in Spain and taking each other off every other weekend and dropping points, Aston were absolutely there to pick up the pieces and a potential in the championship fight. Now, all right, summer break time. We know that that's not happened. It's not the way it shook out. But I stand by that question at the very beginning of the season because their pace was genuine and they were absolutely there. Uh, and we saw Fernando Alonso on all those those podiums in a row. But that obviously has dropped off as the season's gone on. What can you tell us about what the data is telling you from that, that drop in performance from Aston Martin? Well, I, th- I think we, we, we go back to their qualifying pace offset, their single lap pace, and that's usually, for me, a good indication of the potential of the car. If they can achieve that potential in the race, it comes down to, is their car good on the tires? Which, fine, they were at the start. So Aston Martin, about within a half a percent for the first up through Monaco. And then from Spain, they took a hit backwards. But if we look at what Aston Martin was like at the start of the season... Um, if you compare their high-speed cornering performance, they were absolutely insane. But that obviously came with the penalty. Their car was super high drag. And that was one of the reasons why Baku was the only race uh, in that period where they took a huge step backward in single lap performance and their race performance was not particularly good because that straight out of the final corner through the kinks in Baku is effectively the longest on the calendar. Um, so they, they, they were seeing improvements up through Monaco, but then in Spain... They've literally been barely within half a percent. Like they were, they've been about one percent average off of pole, which is clearly midfield. Some of those we had chaotic qualifying sessions, fine, but their race results have told the exact same story. Um, 
So what's going on? Their low-speed performance at the beginning of the season was also very strong and arguably better than Red Bulls in places. And people say, well, downforce gives you high-speed performance, but that's not necessarily true. Like you said, if we can find a couple of kilometers an hour in a low-speed corner, you would take some drag for that maybe. And they've, they've been very good in low-speed corners. But since Spain, their low-speed performances have been a complete 180 turnaround. And it's not super super obvious and you can cherry pick data to suit that but on average on their fastest lap attempts they don't have that edge in those speed corners and then since austria their top speeds have become more competitive so this is saying they're removing drag from their car or they're adding efficiency however with removing drag from the car and increasing their top speed they've also suffered with the exception of austria that was fine but it's uh Britain and Hungary, and even Belgium to some extent, their high speeds uh, and medium speeds have taken a hit backwards. So it feels like there's been a philosophy shift within the team and within the car and how they're operating it, which is net worse results since the start of the season. Uh, the other question is, are Red Bull out developing them? Possibly. But if you look at the performances of, let's say, Ferrari and Mercedes, on average, over the last six races, they haven't really changed much from the first four. And then you have McLaren. You know, if, if Red Bull are developing rapidly, McLaren's trajectory in terms of development right now has to be absolutely insane. Something equivalent to what we saw Aston from last year to the start of this year in terms of wholesale changes to a car. But doing that in the same season, I don't know if we've seen something like that since years ago when the Racing Point brought the B-Spec circa hungry i could be completely off on when that was but that's the only mid-season you know huge jump we've seen in a while i think i think there's probably a couple of factors at play with with the aston i think first of all they were maybe flattered a little bit at the start of the year by mercedes ferrari mclaren being so far back i mean i think fernando was 30 something seconds behind verstappen in bahrain which is a massive gap which is the gap we've got now after the kind of rebel update seems to have shifted them up a gear so I think they perhaps were made to look better at the start of the year than they are in reality. Um, it's clear they've lost a bit of direction. Mike Crack last week came was talking about these side effects of developments that these cars are so complex, you, you make one improvement in one area, it can have consequences elsewhere. And there's this complete conflict between you know, chasing a car that the wind tunnel says you run it low and stiff for maximum downforce and drivers say, no, no, we need to be a bit higher and softer because... I can handle it better and it's better for tired deck. You've got these complete conflicts going on up and down the grid. So I think they've fallen foul there. And there's also been some kind of rumours over the spa weekend about a bit of a flexi wing clampdown in some stage at the start of the season. The FI has been looking closely at what teams have done and a couple of teams appear to have been asked to change things, one of which may be Aston Martin. So there could be some little elements there that just these tiny, tiny, tiny factors. Nothing major, but I think with these cars, they operate in such a narrow window that one little element can can basically push you out the window and your performance drops back in a in a midfield where one-tenth is the difference between third and potentially tenth. And if, if you go back to the between 2022 and 2023, we had what sounded like a small change. It's like they're going to change the height of the floor edges by 15 mil. Arguably, if you've been around for a while, you know that that's a, a profound change that will have people over. But even to what you say, it's like you don't need a very large change to, to take Aston from within a half a percent of single lap pace to being 1% off. Like it's, and it's, and also 
that group that you're fighting for, the margins are so fine, as you mentioned, like maybe Mercedes and Ferrari flattered them a bit at the beginning of the season. But uh, if you don't hit your A game, uh, nine out of 10 marks every time, you will be qualifying potentially outside of the top 10. Easy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to try and understand a way of maybe ordering the grid or categorizing the grid from you because other than the Red Bull RB19, which we think you know we turn, we go into a, a weekend of Formula One, we're pretty sure they're going to be you know winning, but that's okay because there's still loads of great storylines every weekend to get behind whatever team and driver you support. But even as someone who works in Formula One full time, although, you know, very tangentially, I talk about it on videos and podcasts. I'm no expert, but, you know, I talk about it more than some. And even I go into the weekend thinking, I genuinely don't know who's going to be on the podium this weekend. It almost seems like a lottery. The teams say, oh, we don't know. McLaren is saying, well, we're not going to be quick this weekend. They turn up and <laughs> they're back quick again. Um, so what can you tell us about the rest of the grid and how to make sense of what at times is a confusing state of flux? Can you categorize the grid in some way? Maybe looking at sort of high speed corners, low speed corners, and kind of try and put them in some sort of order. Yeah. So we, I had the chat with you guys earlier this week, and I was like, that's a really interesting way to try and let's let's summarize the whole season in terms of qualifying performance and try to give an indication, because we always talk about this, you know, high speed, medium speed, low speed performance. And we've already talked about, you know, you can give up a lot of time in high speed and not actually lose that much lap time because you're only in those corners for such a short period of time. Whereas a low speed corner, you spend a lot of time in the brakes, turning the car, then accelerating out of it. But I had a little look at this, and it's based on qualifying through the whole season. And if you get knocked out in Q1 or Q2, you won't have the track evolution, and that will not be particularly flattering. But cherry-picking all that out, we could just say, what trends do we see if we look at the season of a whole? And no surprise, Red Bull are literally setting the standard in terms of average through straight-line speed, their high-speed performance, medium-speed performance, and low-speed performance. The next team that sits there in terms of, let's say, these cornering speed performances and straight line performance is Ferrari. They're literally second across the board. And I think that kind of makes up for where we perceive Ferrari's single lap performance to be. Um, maybe not their race pace, because that's not what we've looked at here. But I'd like to expand that to that in the future. And then you've got this little group. And you've got, obviously, it's no surprise, but Aston, Mercedes, and McLaren in this group. One of the standout points of Ferrari is they have very good low-speed cornering performance, which is a combination of braking and their traction ability. But then you go look at the problems we've had with McLaren, uh, Aston, and Mercedes. If you now include the whole season, not just the first part of the season, is these three cars fall in the group with both McLaren and Aston being down in the top speed. So, you know, they have reasonable cornering performance, but they're just losing out the top speed. And then you've got the 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 true the back of the field the last uh five teams alpine are in this no man's land of performance and that's helped out by the fact that they do often make it higher up in the qualifying order but they're just kind of sitting in this they've got reasonable low speed performance especially compared to Haas, alpha tauri alfa romeo and williams but it's just like they they're struggling to get all of it together and if i had to guess their high speed performance looks really good and their straight line speed is reasonable comparable with mercedes so they're really missing out something in medium speed, which is often indicative of um, car characteristics, especially aerodynamic characteristics and maybe handling as a whole. And then there's no surprise. Uh, the One of the last ones I want to bring up is uh, Williams. Slow in the medium speed corners, among the worst in low speed. Um, 
comparable with the rest of the field in high-speed corners. Alex has had some phenomenal qualifying performances in that car, especially dragging all the way up into Q3. The straight-line speed is competitive with Ferrari, who are among the best. So I think that's a really interesting way, being quite long-winded, to summarize where all the performance is coming from. It's super interesting seeing where all these teams lie. And Alpine is the interesting one because, you know, I think without too much... Well, they've got an entire new operational team now, so maybe this will take them a little bit longer to get to. But Alpine seem like that team that are ready more so than and Haas, uh, than Alfa Tari, uh, Alfa Romeo, or Williams to make that step into contending consistently on single lap pace. And I think the other thing um, that we see is those, these midfield teams, their qualifying performances are insanely variable. One weekend they're on top, one weekend on, on bottom. And it's, again, these things come down to uh, often tire management, outlap preparation, and other operational issues. Track positioning Q1 is key. And if you're in a gaggle of cars and you miss out on your opportunity, we saw Williams, or not so we saw Haas twice in Spa lose out the chance to set another qualifying lap when the track was substantially better because of timings. And these kind of operational issues are key. You saw another thing on that is Mercedes this weekend. They were queuing at the end of the pit lane, which is something we've seen Red Bull do all season. They're like, you know what? We don't need to be on the best part of track. We just need to avoid uh, cues. You can suffer a little bit of track improvement just as long as you have the track. And then all of that on the second run in the sprint shootout to uh, fumble behind each other because they, they left their cars so close, which happens. But uh, it's an interesting thing when we talk about single lap performance and what we can see because we can only observe what the cars and drivers do. And if you get knocked out in Q1 because you don't set a lap time, it, you know when you do analyses like this, you start to lose significance of some of the stuff i think one of the interesting things about these these ground effects generation of cars is that they're, they're kind of tricky beasts to understand and get performance out of and i think that the reality of performance isn't the areas where the car is strong it's how much you don't lose out in the areas it's weak it's this complete compromise so as i've mentioned earlier you're battling this theoretical brilliance of running it super low and super stiff which can't translate to the real world. Drivers don't like it. It doesn't perform. So you've got to put it into a place where your data and your simulation and your wind tunnel are saying, don't put it there. So you're already compromised. And then you've got variations of ride height. So you've got some corners are super slow, which doesn't suit your where your sweet spot of your ride height is. It's this constant battle and where the, where the weaknesses are. And I think this is why it's unpredictable because different tracks have different variations of corners. You've got some tracks like Silverstone where it's either all high speed or all low speed. Then you've got other corner, other tracks where the variations much between them. So I think this is why it's this is why it's shuffling around. It's not what what the cars are the strongest. It's which car is the least weak in the areas it's not strongest. If that makes any sense. <laughs> I, I think that honestly, I couldn't have said that better myself. And that's the thing that you know race engineers are always dealing with. You're not dealing with making the car the most fast. I, and I said this in my video this week, is you're always dealing with making the cars the least slow, which is a really difficult way to wrap your head around it because you're looking for gains all the time. And sometimes by looking for gains, you're you're slightly biased and you miss losses that are associated with that. And you're like, ah, oh, it's not that big. I found half a tenth here. And it's like, okay, there's there you've lost a tenth everywhere else, you know? And it's 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 a tough game and it's it sounds trivial, but it's not trivial at all. It's, as you said, super complicated and uh and if it wasn't 
we wouldn't have much to talk about, would we? <laughs> All right, well, here we go. The moment that every Red Bull fan, every Formula One fan has been waiting for in this video. Your analysis of what the data tells you about the Red Bull RB19. Smashing records left, right and centre. Who knows what they can go on to achieve this year and until a big rules change as well. If anyone can eat into that lead, what sort of records can, can fall over Red Bull's period of dominance and Max Verstappen is completely on, on form, top form of his career right now. Now, we love listening to that team radio. I think a lot of that's hammed up for the audience, by the way, between him and Max Verstappen and, and, and his engineer. But also, just if, you, if you're able to watch some of the in-car uh, Max Verstappen uh, audio, then he's, he's just generally just chatting like he's out for a Sunday drive. The guy doesn't seem under pressure. I'm sure he is. not easy to drive a Formula One car. He's completely got it under control this year. It's, it's a joy to watch. It's an honour to be watching Formula One during this time. We can all say that we were here watching it during a time when they made an amazing car, that team under Adrian Newey. And a, a, a big team effort as well. It's not just one person, but he is clearly crucial to that effort and taking that overview of looking at the car and the performance and bringing those things. And he's got all that experience as well. The last time this rule set was very similar of where we generate uh, the downforce. What can you tell us? What the data tells us about Red Bull, what appears to be a really powerful DRS, the inter-team battle as well. Now, you know, Checo Perez has... Dropped the ball himself at times, been let down at times and been unlucky at times as well. But, you know, not making it out of Q1, Q2 in a car that is, you know, once a generation car, it is, he knows that he's missing a golden opportunity in Formula One. But is there any beating Max Verstappen? What can you tell us? I, I think the interesting thing is we've, we've talked that the Red Bull's DRS efficiency, the car efficiency as a whole. Um, we, we've been talking about this all season. I'm, I, I keep looking at this every week and... In, it doesn't matter where we go, a uh, high-speed, low-speed circuit, um, Red Bulls seem to have a larger DRS delta. But, I mean, if you plot their average speed with DRS off, that's also very similar. So they've got a big DRS delta size, and they've got an average drag on their car. So they're doing something that nobody else has picked up on. And with the lack of flexibility that you have in suspensions, and with the rigor that the FIA apply to measuring... Uh, stiffnesses and like John mentioned earlier the wing deflections they're always I, I seem to remember in the past they're always adding new ways to test the wings like at FAR like right we'll do this pull down test or this pullback test we'll isolate the car here and try this and I, I think whatever Red Bull are doing is is probably quite clever and clearly like they, they do the tests on these cars all the time because if you're Red Bull you've got a spotlight on you it's like you guys are really fast in a straight line. Your sister team, using the same engines as you, they're slower in a straight line, and they have the same power unit. And the FIA also have all the, the, the power meter data. Like, you can see the engine powers and engine torques. The FIA are policing that, and that's one of the topics we've had is uh, in the press is the engine parity that, that Renault or Alpine have been discussing. So that's, that's that. And from a data point of view, without more data than we have, we can just make those observations. Their their DRS delta at every event has been on top. Um, Spa, there was a couple teams close to them. And in, in Canada, that was a wet qualifying session as well. So I wish I had some more insight on what, how, or why their DRS delta is so big. But I think the other interesting point, and I think you guys probably have some thoughts on this as well, is Max and Checo's performance. I, I went and have had a look through like a lot of qualifying sessions trying to pinpoint one thing that Checo's struggling with and it wasn't exactly clear and I, th I think the thing that we get to is the difficulty 
when the measuring stick that you're compared to is a driver who is operating where Max is operating right now. I mean, he's eat, sleeping, breathing, drinking, sim racing, driving, winning. He wants to win every race by the biggest margin possible. He wants every pole position, and he's not willing to give up anything. So I wouldn't say Checo's not hungry to win, but I, I wish I had some more profound that I could say, you know, like Checo's really struggling on the brakes under low-speed corners. But if that was the case, I guarantee you his race and performance engineer um, and the team would have helped push him there. And I, th I think it's just a difficult thing. And one of the things we speculated is the pressure at the beginning of the season when you are mathematically in the title fight. What does that do to you? And I, and I feel like that's possibly one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in driver performance or a psychologist, but I can tell you when the pressure's on, I, I see people that perform better and worse under that pressure. And imagine you're going up against Max for the, for the title this year in a car that is second to none. This, this, you know, this is like, the, like we said, like the, the Rosberg gear, this is your chance. And yeah, it's a, it's a tough set of shoes to fill, honestly. But I don't, I think at the same time, some of his qualifying performances um, leave a bit to be lacking because, you know, you, you want to be, if you're not the first car, you need to be the second car in that car. Um, but uh, realistically, his race performances have been reasonable. His recovery drives have been strong. Some of them maybe not as fast coming through the field as Max might have been, but I'm a fan of the one-two arrangement because if you have two number one drivers, you take points away from yourself and take yourself out frequently. And we've seen that before in a number of teams. The Red Bull have a history of the, the one-two driver battle and the mentalities coming together and uh, double DNFs and lots of fun there. But yeah, that, that's a tough one. Yeah, on the, on the chassis, on, on the DRS um, topic first, it seems that some rival teams are getting more and more convinced that the secret is not some super trick system with the, the DRS element itself, but it's the ratio between the drag of the, the rear wing and the, the beam wing that basically... Red Bull, because the entire car works so well together and the floor's absolutely nailed, they can take the beam wing, reduce the drag much more than anyone else is comfortable to, which therefore means more of the drag is on the, the main wing. So when the DRS opens, obviously sheds a much bigger ratio of drag. Uh, so other teams know, kind of understand and are chasing this. We saw McLaren go in that direction, but they don't have the confidence and faith and the, the floor and the diffuser working in the way that they can do it yet. So do you think that is a decent explanation as to why in very basic terms kind of the theory behind it i think absolutely like like you said if, if red bull have found like the, the diffuser does not produce as much drag as uh, the the beam wing and the wing and the beam wing serves to uh, exaggerate the floor and interact with the the rear wing as well and the ratios of which i'm not familiar because like when i look at cars I don't, I don't look at cars that very much. I'm like, just show me the data. I don't care what it looks like, you know? <laughs> I wish I wish I had more insight into aerodynamic design because I will not even begin to uh, lead you somewhere where I'm not comfortable with that topic. <laughs> I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. But in terms of that explanation is a, a very top-level approach. It seems completely plausible, and I think that's definitely... If, if, if I look at, like, for example, McLaren's DRS Delta size, since they've introduced their upgrades... Their DRS off speeds are getting bigger, so they've clearly shed some uh, some drag. But their DRS delta size has actually gotten smaller. So in, in that regard, it looks like they've gone towards overall more efficiency and disregarding the fact that the DRS is really only in qualifying. And you do gain time from having a higher base car efficiency. But their DRS on speeds are very similar to the start of the season. They've just taken drag off when DRS is off, which is... Uh, 
you, you gain lap time in the races, whether you're racing somebody or not, and you do gain time in qualifying for that as well. But I think it all all boils back to what we what we said earlier about it's this holistic package and understanding every element of the car and how every single component acts and interacts with every other component to make the package as a whole. I don't think the, the Red Bull is especially brilliant in one area. It's just very, very good across all of them. And as you said, it's it's stronger in the weak areas, which basically is the is the key to key to success. And, and and further to that point, they started off on a very good foot where you have teams like Ferrari. Uh, last season, they started tr- struggling with tire management, and you know they they seem to have a very pointy car that costs them out in qualifying. Like the car was very violent in terms of snaps and corrections and issues. Like I remember, was it France last year with Leclerc through the the long sweeping corners? It's like the car just went, and you saw that so many times. And you see, they have to keep on the throttle in the high speed corners to keep the car stable, so the car has. You know, they have a philosophy which requires a lot of front end to work well, which probably is a good explanation why their tire performance is so bad. Um, but yeah, Red Bull have started off with a strong base, and that's given them the ability to fine tune the weaknesses, like you said. So they don't need to, you know, make super broad strokes. They found efficiency even further this season, and they can start working on the characteristics. And that's one thing that, that Andrew Stella talked about was these characteristics that we talk about in terms of the wind tunnel, it's like, I think, you know, you can change the, the mechanical balance of the anti-roll bars of the car, and that will make the car more or less understeer or oversteer everywhere. And then you say, right, we've got an issue where the car is unstable, low speed entry. You know, it's this very fine window that lasts maybe two tenths of a second or half a second in a low speed corner. We need to see what states the car is in here in terms of ride heights, roll angle, yaw angle, and we need to find some things that we can change on the body of the car, the wings and flicks and bodywork, so that we take load off the front of the car right here in this tiny little window space. And that's that's the kind of detail that Red Bull have able to been able to push. But these things like Andrew Stella even mentioned, these things take months of testing in CFD and the virtual wind tunnel, taking them to the wind tunnel, and then making sure they actually work on the track because CFD and the wind tunnel are very much abstractions from reality and you have several dimensions that you can't model in these tools that exist in real life. So that's that's where these people are finding these advantages and making it like you said fixing the weaknesses which are very hard to do. Yeah, and on the uh, on the Checo point, I, I think I think it's multiple factors at play there. One you're up against Max Verstappen who is an absolute animal, just you know 100% committed, brilliant all the time and the weaknesses he had in the past of you know being too aggressive getting involved in instances he need to get involved in you know being potentially impatient that's all gone now he's now everything's under control he's totally on top of the car so you've got Perez is going up against that uh, I remember speaking to Checo in head of Miami Grand Prix just come off the back of um, the Baku win looking in title contention this Thursday press call was absolutely packed and it was the press conference of a man fighting for a championship and then that Sunday, beaten by Max, you know, takes your confidence away. Then you have the, you know, unfortunate incident in Monaco qualifying, wrecks your confidence. Then you just get trapped into this spiral of your confidence goes down. You can't perform as well. You get more impatient to get results. And it's really hard to hard to pull yourself down. And when you're going up against someone like Max Verstappen, there's no, there's no breathing space. It's, you're up against Max, you're up against you know, potentially one of the greatest 
F1 drivers of all time. So I think, you know, if he can come out, if he can get, you know, another win or two later this season, it will be be enough. And I agree with you on the kind of the the one-two element at Red Bull. The best teams are always have a clear number one that goes for the championship and then the the second driver is the the brilliant support finishing right behind him because otherwise, you know, you do risk taking points off each other and leaving the door open to someone else. I I think that's a perfect summary of that. And it's... It's going to be interesting to see if uh, we can get a little bit of a, a reset. But what happens when Ferrari, Mercedes, Aston, McLaren start putting pressure on the championship for the constructors? Let's say next season, what does that look like? What happens there? And uh, yeah, I, I'm going to need two weeks off in August to think about it. <laughs> Amazing, guys. Well, look, we'll call it a day. We'll call it a day there. Thank you so much. I've learned so much on the video today. If you have as well, something on your mind, leave us a comment below anything that Blake or John have said. Uh, Blake, I know earlier this year you kind of tidied up your your ha- your social media handles and stuff. Where can we find you now in all those various places? Yeah, so pretty much everywhere is just break with three R's. So B-R-R-R-A-K-E. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. I don't have an answer for that. Um, and then if you if you look for Break F1 on YouTube, you can find me. But uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me on. As always, it's, it's awesome talking to you guys. And uh, I really appreciate getting your insights as well from the conversations that you have at the track, because I don't have that now. I'm, I'm isolated <laughs> in my office working from home. And uh, it, it's always interesting to see the, the thoughtful uh, comments and takes and the interpretations that you guys have of uh, what you guys are observing on the ground. So uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you very much once again for the work that you do. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our midweek Autosport podcast this week in the Formula One summer break. We've got more podcasts for you uh, to analyze, not just Formula One, but some other series as well that uh, we want to talk about here on the Autosport podcast. And of course, uh, blink and you'll miss it. The holidays will be over and Formula One will be back. But until then, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you on the next one. Podcast Network.